0: chapter 6 parts 1 2 and 3 of war in the air this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by william tomko war in the air by hg wells chapter 6 parts 1 2 and 3 Chapter six How War Came to New York Part one The city of New York was in the year of the German attack the largest, richest, in many respects, the most splendid, and in some the wickedest city the world had ever seen. She was the supreme type of the city of the scientific commercial age. She displayed its greatness, its power, its ruthless anarchic enterprise and its social disorganization most strikingly and completely. She had long ousted London from her pride of place as the modern Babylon. She was the center of the world's finance, the world's trade, and the world's pleasure, and men likened her to the apocalyptic cities of the ancient prophets. She sat drinking up the wealth of a continent, as Rome once drank the wealth of the Mediterranean, and Babylon the wealth of the East in her streets one found the extremes of magnificence and misery of civilization and disorder in one quarter palaces of marble laced and crowned with light and flame and flowers towered up into her marvellous twilights beautiful beyond description in another a black and sinister polyglot population sweltered in indescribable congestion in warrens and excavations beyond the power and knowledge of government her vice her crime her law alike were inspired by a fierce and terrible energy and like the great cities of medieval italy her ways were dark and adventurous with private war it was the peculiar shape of manhattan island pressed in by arms of the sea on either side, and incapable of comfortable expansion except along a narrow northward belt that first gave the New York architects their bias for extreme vertical dimension. Every need was lavishly supplied them. Money, material, labor. Only space was restricted. To begin, therefore, they built high perforce but to do so was to discover a whole new world of architectural beauty of exquisite ascendant lines and long after the central congestion had been relieved by tunnels under the sea four colossal bridges over the east river and a dozen monorail cables east and west the upward growth went on in many ways new york and her gorgeous plutocracy repeated venice in the magnificence of her architecture painting metalwork and sculpture for example, in the grim intensity of her political method, in her maritime and commercial ascendancy. But she repeated no previous state at all in the lax disorder of her internal administration, a laxity that made vast sections of her area lawless beyond precedent, so that it was possible for whole districts to be impassable, while civil war raged between street and street, and for Alsatius to exist in her midst in which the official police never set foot, she was an ethnic whirlpool the flags of all nations flew in her harbor and at the climax the yearly coming and going overseas numbered together upwards of two million human beings to europe she was america to america she was the gateway of the world but to tell the story of new york would be to write a social history of the world saints and martyrs dreamers and scoundrels the traditions of a thousand races and a thousand religions went to her making and throbbed and jostled in her streets and over all that torrential confusion of men and purposes fluttered that strange flag the stars and stripes that meant at once the noblest thing in life and the least noble that is to say liberty on the one hand and on the other the base jealousy the individual self-seeker feels towards the common purpose of the state For many generations, New York had taken no heed of war, save as a thing that happened far away, that affected prices and supplied the newspapers with exciting headlines and pictures. The New Yorkers felt perhaps even more certainly than the English had done that war in their own land was an impossible thing, in that they shared the delusion of all North America. They felt as secure as spectators at a bullfight. They risked their money, perhaps, on the result but that was all, and such ideas of war as the common Americans possessed were derived from the limited, picturesque, adventurous war of the past. They saw war as they saw history through an iridescent mist, deodorized, scented, indeed, with all its essential cruelties tactfully hidden away. They were inclined to regret it as something ennobling, to sigh that it could no longer come into their own private experience they read with interest if not with avidity of their new guns of their immense and still more immense ironclads of their incredible and still more incredible explosives but just what these tremendous engines of destruction might mean for their personal lives never entered their heads they did not so far as one can judge from their contemporary literature think that they meant anything to their personal lives at all they thought america was safe amidst all this piling up of explosives they cheered the flag by habit and tradition they despised other nations and whenever there was an international difficulty they were intensely patriotic that is to say they were ardently against any native politician who did not say threaten and do harsh and uncompromising things to the antagonist people they were spirited to asia spirited to germany so spirited to great britain that the international attitude of the mother country to her great daughter was constantly compared in contemporary caricature to that between a henpecked husband and a vicious young wife and for the rest they all went about their business and pleasure as if war had died out with the megatherium and then suddenly into a world peacefully busied for the most part upon armaments and the perfection of explosives war came came with shock of realizing that the guns were going off that the masses of inflammable material all over the world were at last ablaze part two the immediate effect upon new york of the sudden onset of war was merely to intensify her normal vehemence The newspapers and magazines that fed the American mind, for books upon this impatient continent had become simply material for the energy of collectors, were instantly a coruscation of war pictures and of headlines that rose like rockets and burst like shells. To the normal high-strung energy of New York streets was added a touch of war fever. Great crowds assembled, more especially in the dinner hour in Madison Square, about the Farragut Monument, to listen to and cheer patriotic speeches, and a veritable epidemic of little flags and buttons swept through these great torrents of swiftly moving young people who poured into New York of a morning by car and monorail and subway and train to toil and ebb home again between the hours of five and seven. It was dangerous not to wear a war-button, the splendid music halls of the time sank every topic in patriotism and evolved scenes of wild enthusiasm strong men wept at the sight of the national banner sustained by the whole strength of the ballet and special searchlights and illuminations amazed the watching angels the churches re-echoed the national enthusiasm in graver key and slower measure and the aerial and naval preparations on the east river were greatly incommoded by the multitude of excursion steamers which thronged helpfully cheering about them the trade in small arms was enormously stimulated and many overwrought citizens found an immediate relief for their emotions in letting off fireworks of a more or less heroic dangerous and national character in the public streets small children's air balloons of the latest model attached to string became a serious check to the pedestrian in central park and amidst scenes of indescribable emotion the albany legislature in permanent session and with a generous suspension of rules and precedents passed through both houses the long disputed bill for universal military service in new york state Critics of the American character are disposed to consider that up to the actual impact of the German attack, the people of New York dealt altogether too much with the war as if it was a political demonstration. Little or no damage, they urge, was done to either the German or Japanese forces by the wearing of buttons, the waving of small flags, the fireworks, or the songs. They forgot that, under the conditions of warfare, a century of science had brought about the non-military section of the population could do no serious damage in any form to their enemies, and that there was no reason, therefore, why they should not do as they did. The balance of military efficiency was shifting back from the many to the few, from the common to the specialized the days when the emotional infantrymen decided battles had passed by forever. War had become a matter of apparatus of special training and skill of the most intricate kind. It had become undemocratic. And whatever the value of the popular excitement, there can be no denying that the small, regular establishment of the United States government, confronted by this totally unexpected emergency of an armed invasion from Europe, acted with vigor, science, and imagination they were taken by surprise so far as the diplomatic situation was concerned and their equipment for building either navigables or aeroplanes was contemptible in comparison with the huge german parks still they set to work at once to prove to the world that the spirit that had created the monitor and the southern submarines of eighteen sixty four was not dead the chief of the aeronautic establishment near west point was cabot st clair and he allowed himself but one single moment of the posturing that was so universal in that democratic time. "'We have chosen our epitaphs,' he said to a reporter, "'and we are going to have—they did all they could. Now run away.' The curious thing is that they did all do all they could. There is no exception known. Their only defect, indeed, was a defect of style." One of the most striking facts, historically, about this war, and the one that makes the complete separation that had arisen between the methods of warfare and the necessity of democratic support, is the effectual secrecy of the Washington authorities about their airships. They did not bother to confide a single fact of their preparations to the public. They did not even condescend to talk to Congress. They burked and suppressed every inquiry. The war was fought by the president and the secretaries of state in an entirely autocratic manner. Such publicity as they sought was merely to anticipate and prevent inconvenient agitation to defend particular points. They realized that the chief danger in aerial warfare from an excitable and intelligent public would be a clamor for local airships and aeroplanes to defend local interests. This, with such resources as they possessed, might lead to a fatal division and distribution of the national forces. Particularly, they feared that they might be forced into a premature action to defend New York. They released with prophetic insight that this would be the particular advantage the Germans would seek. So, they took great pains to direct the popular mind towards defensive artillery and to divert it from any thought of aerial battle their real preparations, they masked beneath ostensible ones. There was at Washington a large reserve of naval guns, and these were distributed rapidly, conspicuously, and with much press attention among the eastern cities. They were mounted for the most part upon hills and prominent crests around the threatened centers of population. They were mounted upon rough adaptations of the domed Swivel, which at that time gave the maximum vertical range to a heavy gun much of this artillery was still unmounted and nearly all of it was unprotected when the german air fleet reached new york and down in the crowded streets when that occurred the readers of the new york papers were regaling themselves with wonderful and wonderfully illustrated accounts of such matters as the secret of the thunderbolt aged scientist perfects electric gun to electrocute airship crews by upward lightning Washington orders 500. War Secretary Lodge, delighted, says they will suit the Germans down to the ground. President publicly applauds this merry quip. Part 3. The German fleet reached New York in advance of the news of the American naval disaster. It reached New York in the late afternoon and was first seen by watchers at Ocean Grove and Long Branch coming swiftly out of the southward sea and going away to the northwest. The flagship passed almost vertically over the Sandy Hook observation station, rising rapidly as it did so, and in a few minutes all New York was vibrating to the Staten Island guns. Several of these guns, and especially that at Giffords and the one on Beacon Hill above Matawan, were remarkably well handled. The former, at a distance of five miles, and with an elevation of six thousand feet, sent a shell to burst so close to the Vaterland that a pane of the prince's forward window was smashed by a fragment. This sudden explosion made Bert tuck in his head with the celerity of a startled tortoise. The whole air fleet immediately went up steeply to a height of about twelve thousand feet, and at that level passed unscathed over the ineffectual guns the airships lined out as they moved forward into the form of a flattened V, with its apex towards the city, and with the flagship going highest at the apex. The two ends of the V passed over Plumfield and Jamaica Bay, respectively, and the Prince directed his course a little to the east of the Narrows, soared over Upper Bay, and came to rest over Jersey City in a position that dominated Lower New York. There are monsters hung, large and wonderful in the evening light, serenely regardless of the occasional rocket explosions and flashing shell bursts in the lower air. It was a pause of mutual inspection. For a time, naive humanity swamped the conventions of warfare altogether. The interest of the millions below and of the thousands above alike was spectacular the evening was unexpectedly fine only a few thin level bands of clouds at seven or eight thousand feet broke its luminous clarity the wind had dropped it was an evening infinitely peaceful and still the heavy concussions of the distant guns and those incidental harmless pyrotechnics at the level of the clouds seemed to have as little to do with killing and force terror and submission as a salute at a naval review Below, every point of vantage bristled with spectators, the roofs of the towering buildings, the public squares, the active ferry boats, and every favorable street intersection had its crowds. All the river piers were dense with people, the Battery Park was solid black with east side population, and every position of advantage in Central Park and along Riverside Drive had its peculiar and characteristic assembly from the adjacent streets. The footways of the great bridges over the East River were also closely packed and blocked. Everywhere shopkeepers had left their shops, men their work, and women and children their homes to come out and see the marvel. It beat, they declared, the newspapers. And from above, many of the occupants of the airships stared with an equal curiosity. No city in the world was ever so finely placed as New York so magnificently cut up by sea and bluff and river, so admirably disposed to display the tall effects of buildings, the complex immensities of bridges and mono railways and feats of engineering. London, Paris, Berlin were shapeless, low agglomerations beside it. Its port reached to its heart like Venice, and like Venice it was obvious, dramatic, and proud. Seen from above, it was alive, with crawling trains and cars, and at a thousand points it was already breaking into quivering light. New York was altogether at its best that evening, its splendid best. "Gaw, What a place!' said Bert. It was so great, and in its collective effect so pacifically magnificent, that to make war upon it seemed incongruous beyond measure." like laying siege to the National Gallery or attacking respectable people in an hotel dining room with battle-axe and mail it was in its entirety so large so complex so delicately immense that to bring it to the issue of warfare was like driving a crowbar into the mechanism of a clock and the fish-like shoal of great airships hovering light and sunlit above filling the sky seemed equally remote from the ugly forcefulness of war To Kurt, to Smallways, to I know not how many more of the people in the air fleet came the distinctest apprehension of these incompatibilities. But in the head of the Prince Carl Albert were the vapors of romance. He was a conqueror, and this was the enemy city. The greater the city, the greater the triumph. No doubt he had a time of tremendous exaltation, and sensed beyond all precedent the sense of power that night." there came an end at last to that pause some wireless communications had failed of a satisfactory ending and fleet and city remembered they were hostile powers look cried the multitude look what are they doing what down through the twilight sank five attacking airships one to the navy yard on east river one to city hall two over the great business buildings of wall street and lower broadway one to the Brooklyn Bridge, dropping from among their fellows through the danger zone, from the distant guns smoothly and rapidly, to a safe proximity to the city's masses. At that descent, all the cars in the streets stopped with dramatic suddenness, and all the lights that had been coming on in the streets and houses went out again, for the city hall had awakened and was conferring by telephone with the Federal Command and taking measures for defense the city hall was asking for airships refusing to surrender as washington advised and developing into a centre of intense emotion of hectic activity everywhere and hastily the police began to clear the assembled crowds go to your homes they said and the word was passed from mouth to mouth there's going to be trouble a chill of apprehension ran through the city and men hurrying in the unwonted darkness across city hall park and union square came upon the dim forms of soldiers and guns and were challenged and sent back in half an hour new york had passed from serene sunset and gaping admiration to a troubled and threatening twilight the first loss of life occurred in the panic rush from brooklyn bridge as the airship approached it With the cessation of the traffic, an unusual stillness came upon New York, and the disturbing concussions of the futile defending guns on the hills about grew more and more audible. At last, these ceased also. A pause of further negotiation followed. People sat in darkness, sought counsel from telephones that were dumb. Then, into the expectant hush, came a great crash and uproar the breaking down of the brooklyn bridge the rifle fire from the navy yard and the bursting of bombs in wall street and the city hall new york as a whole could do nothing could understand nothing new york in the darkness peered and listened to these distant sounds until presently they died away as suddenly as they had begun what could be happening they asked it in vain A long, vague period intervened, and people looking out of the windows of upper rooms discovered the dark hulls of German airships, gliding slowly and noiselessly, quite close at hand. Then, quietly, the electric lights came on again, and an uproar of nocturnal news vendors began in the streets. The units of that vast and varied population bought and learnt what had happened. There had been a fight, and New York had hoisted the white flag. End of chapter six, parts one, two, and three. Recording by William Tomko.